This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, helping you unlock money you didn't know you had. Members-only discounts that can save you tons. Find out more at carp.ca. Good afternoon. Welcome to the Zoomer Weekend Review, all things Zoomer worldwide. I'm Christine Ross for Libby Snymer. Canada marks Nursing Week as the profession is in crisis. And a new groundbreaking book on the six living generations. But first, here are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. New research from an international pancreatic cancer vaccine trial is showing promising results for the possible use of vaccines to fight cancer. A study that looked at 16 cancer patients in a vaccine trial in the U.S. and Germany found the drug shows radically encouraging progress. The patients were given mRNA vaccines, the same type of system used in certain COVID-19 vaccines. Scientists customized the vaccines to provoke an immune response in patient cells in an attempt to train the immune system to fight back against cancer. The patients showed no relapse of their cancer during the 18-month trial. Researchers caution, however, it's early days and the cost is a major barrier. New genetic risk factors for two types of non-Alzheimer's dementia have just been identified by scientists at the UK's National Institutes of Health. The team discovered several structural variants that could be risk factors for Lewy body dementia and frontotemporal dementia. Unlike more commonly studied mutations, these structural variants represent up to thousands of mutations at once, making them more challenging to study. The lead researcher says from a genetic standpoint, these exciting findings provide a point of reference for cell biology and possibly down the road, interventions. Cigarette smoking in the U.S. has fallen to historic lows. The Centers for Disease Control says only 11% of adults currently smoke cigarettes, but e-cigarette use is climbing. In the 1940s, about half of all American adults said they smoked cigarettes, before rates began to decline in the 60s to 2016 when 15% of adults said they smoked cigarettes. The CDC finds that more than 10 times as many U.S. citizens have died prematurely from cigarette smoking than have died in all the wars fought by the U.S. Canada has made much headway, too. 1965, roughly half the population of Canada smoked, By 2017, it was below 15%. We really are on a path to completion. Sister Donna Dodge says her order, the Sisters of Charity in New York, have decided that their aging order will no longer accept new members and the decision means an end to the congregation. Through more than 200 years, the sisters have nursed Civil War casualties, joined civil rights and anti-war demonstrations, cared for orphans, and taught countless children. Its numbers have declined from a 1960s peak of more than 1,300 to just 154 today, and not a single new sister has joined the Catholic Order in more than 20 years. The pay for top U.S. CEOs rose 8% to record levels last year. A new study finds that big stock awards help them stay ahead of inflation, even as U.S. workers' pay fell behind. 
Some CEOs earned almost 300 times the pay of their median employee, a big increase over the previous two years. One of the biggest pay increases went to Jeffrey's CEO, Richard Handler, whose $57 million received last year was nearly double his total compensation in 2021. In this country, people were shocked to learn that Galen Weston took in $8.4 million in total compensation last year for his role as head of Loblaw Companies Limited. I'm Christine Ross, and those are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. We're wrapping up Nursing Week in Canada, a time to recognize nurses for the important role they play in health care. Many believe Ontario's nursing shortage has reached a crisis point, impacting nurses and the quality of care that patients receive. Poor working conditions and the pandemic have left nurses feeling burnt out, with many considering or actually leaving the profession they once loved. We reach Dr. Claudette Holloway, president of the Registered Nurses Association of Ontario. These past years have been tough on your profession. First, there's Bill 124 that caps wages. Now Bill 60, the health reform bill that expands delivery of private care. And then not to mention that nurses and other healthcare professionals have been on the front lines of a global pandemic. That's a lot in three years. It certainly has been. And we're thankful for having this opportunity to share the information. I want to say Happy Nursing Week to all our nurses, and we truly appreciate all they have uh, contributed, how they've put uh, Ontarians first. And in spite of that, we're unable to make headway with our government to repeal Bill 124 to uh, use our not-for-profit public health system to deal with backlogs rather than going to investor-driven care. So it is a lot. Uh, Nurses are resilient. Um, we're the backbone of the healthcare structure, but we're here to continue to bring that message that having public for profit care and a two tiered system is not the answer to the problems that we have in healthcare right now. So, as you said, this is a celebratory week for nurses, um, for all of us to be thankful um, for what they do. But I'm reading that some are just feeling too burnt out to even acknowledge it you know, with the staffing shortages in hallway medicine. And and even a survey recently revealed that 8 in 10 have some form of burnout, while 7 in 10 have symptoms of anxiety or depression. So something has to change. Something has to change. And, you know, if we can get some fair compensation for nurses, uh, competitive compensation that they can be acknowledged and valued for the care that they continue to give to the education they have, the expertise that they bring, if we can get fair workloads and, and environments that are conducive to a healthy workplace, that will make an awful lot of difference. And we know that, yes, many nurses are burnt out. Many have, you know, uh, saying that they're going to leave the profession. But we also have good news that there's a number of nurses, um, students who are, are applying to uh, nursing programs. And, you know, we're thankful for the small steps the government have made to increase uh, seats in uh, nursing education, but we need to see a whole lot more. Um, so, yes, it is a, a dire story, but we know that um, the nurses, we are here, particularly at RNA, we share with other health professionals, other voices to raise our voice to say that our healthcare system is in serious trouble. We need um, help and uh, passing bill. Uh, Bill 60 for having a two-tiered system is the worst way to go. We need our government to protect our, you know, our health care act and uh, stand up for not-for-profit health care. You know, you mentioned um, 
an increase in pay, which is a pretty basic request and a fair request. But I hear from a lot of nurses as well that they talk about respect and they feel maligned. That's true. Um, We've heard from many of our members, they feel disrespected. And of course, when you have um, something that has been deemed, uh, you know, unconstitutional and uh, we have our premier continuing to uh, appeal for that, you know, that, that is showing a lack of respect. That is showing a lack of respect for nurses, and we brought this to the attention of our, our premier and his government several times. So one way to start, we, we know that nurses need to make a fair wage. They're not asking to, you know, to be millionaires. They're asking for a fair wage, considering that um, the cost of living is so high and they've been capped for so long that they are definitely losing more and more money. They're trying to feed their family, put food on their tables, much like the rest of us. But it's just acknowledging um, that nurses, and we hear the words, but we want to see the action. We want to see some real action that shows our government values and respect nurses. So let's talk about this week, Nursing Week. What's the theme this year? Well, we continue um, to join with other uh, health and nursing agencies around the country um, to acknowledge that this is the week set aside to you know, give praise and acknowledge, celebrate nurses. The public, if they have had experiences with nurses where they have made a difference and they want to say, reach out and give a shout out to the nurse, members of the public can use social media and use hashtag uh, HeyNurse, H-E-Y-N-U-R-S-E. I've heard of Take Your Kid to Work. Tell me a little bit about Take Your MPP to Work. And I understand this will continue beyond Nursing Week. Yes. Um, many things that we've done at RNL, we've been on the road with for a while, you know, talking about not-for-profit health care, talking about RN prescribing, and also take your MPP to work. And I've been able to participate in this for many years myself to let uh, members of provincial parliament know what it is like. And we have nurses in all sectors. So we invite all nurses to really connect with their members of provincial parliament and invite them out to Come and see what it's like, what it's really like. And a lot of members of provincial parliament take advantage, but there's still many who haven't done it. And we really encourage them to come along and do it. We really uh, look to have conversations with them to let them know, increase the awareness of what it is really like in the world of nursing and healthcare and the challenges that we have and we're facing and that the way we're going, it is looking worse. If we continue down this road with, you know, for-profit, Healthcare that creates a two-tiered system. Dr. Claudette Holloway, thank you so much for this. Thanks so much. Thanks for the opportunity. That was Dr. Claudette Holloway, President of the Registered Nurses Association of Ontario. I'm Christine Ross, and this is the Zoomer Weekend Review. Coming up, a revealing portrait into the living generations, how we coexist, and how we're different, and what it means for the future. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, bringing you vital information to boost your health, your finances, and your rights. Find out more at carp.ca. Generation gaps are just as big as they were in the late 60s when it was the boomers who were not understood by their parents. That's the conclusion of Generations expert Gene Twangy who's out with groundbreaking research into how the different generations connect and conflict with one another. 
In her new book, Generations, The Real Differences Between Gen Z, Millennials, Gen X, Boomers, and Silence, and What They Mean for America's Future, Jean chronicles the six living generations, each with their own values and attitudes, and she dispels some myths like the belief millennials are broke and boomers are the only rich generation. We reached author and San Diego State University psychology professor Jean Twangy. I want to ask you about the okay boomer generation that seems to be maligned by millennials and or even younger cohorts that boomers are successful they have all the wealth leaving nothing to the next generation but your data tells you that this is untrue correct and that wages among millennials are rising right so there's there's some misperceptions i think on, on both sides so first millennials have done pretty well economically their median income in the u.s is at all-time highs, even when corrected for inflation, including the cost of housing. And boomers have not done as well as is commonly perceived, especially those without a college education, really found themselves stuck as the economy shifted from manufacturing to more service and white-collar jobs in the 1980s. And it was too late for a lot of boomers who didn't get a college education. So... I think this, this perception of boomers is all rich and powerful and then you know, climbing the ladder and then pulling it up so then younger generations can't succeed really isn't true when you dig into the data from, you know, from the U.S. Census and the Bureau of Labor Statistics. Why is it so important to study generational differences? My goal in this book is to help the generations understand each other better. Because there's so many stereotypes and rumors and myths about the differences among generations. But I see a real dearth of actual data. So that's what I did in this book, analyze the data from 39 million people across all of the generations to try to separate the myths from the realities with that goal of a better understanding. So I think generation gaps right now are just as big as they were in the late 1960s, when it was the boomers who weren't understood by their greatest generation parents. And because of technology and other factors, we have these big generation gaps, and there's just a lot of misunderstanding, and I'm hoping to try to combat that. You dedicate the book to your parents, who you say witnessed the birth of six generations, and to your three kids, who will see many more. Uh, This kind of sums up how life expectancy has risen exponentially from, you know, generations ago. Talk to me about that. Yeah, so we live more years of life, and that's due to technology like better medical care. And that's meant, among other things, that the whole trajectory of life has slowed down from infancy to old age because we have longer. So kids are less independent, and teens are less likely to have a driver's license or a paid job, and young adults take longer to marry and have kids. And middle-aged people look and feel younger than their parents and grandparents did at the same age. Well, you mentioned technology, and something else that caught my eye is you say that um, technology leads to another trend that has enormous impact. You say taking longer to grow up and longer to grow old. That's pretty profound. It is. I think it's one thing that has led to a lot of misunderstandings across the generations. I think there's a lot of grandparents who say, why aren't my millennial grandkids married? They're, They're 28. But this is a broader phenomenon. It's something that's happening across all of the generations that we just have longer. 
We'll talk a little bit about the changing norms and culture. My parents married very young. They had six children. Fast forward to my generation. I have two children. And while I was young when I married, I was I was older than my parents. And now this next generation is waiting even longer. And marriage isn't even on the books in some cases. I, I like the anecdote that you tell about having your third child and someone asking you if it was a mistake. Yeah, there's such a strong social norm, uh, at least in many circles, to have two children. And it turns out, though, I, I'm, I'm a Gen Xer. I'm actually not as unusual as I thought I was when I crunched the data. It turns out there are more Gen X women who had three or more children compared to boomer women. Not a lot more, but more, which is surprising. It, it also surprises me the speed now at which culture is changing. It's not that long ago same-sex marriage was still frowned upon. Um, abortion rights, well, I know... <laughs> in some states, still pretty shaky in your country, but um, legalizing of marijuana. During my youth, all of these would have seemed highly unlikely. So if everything is happening this fast now, what can the next generations expect? Yeah, so, you know, all of these things are part of increasing individualism. So more focus on the self and less on social rules. So individualism comes with trade-offs, more freedom and more equality, but also more disconnection. And that is part of what we're seeing with Gen Z, so those born 1995 to 2012. So they celebrate freedom and equality, but they're also more skeptical about relationships and about having children. So one of the big surveys analyzes of grade 12 students and wanting to have children has been high and steady since the 1970s. And then just in that transition between millennials and Gen Z, it started to fall. So you say 2012 then was a pivotal year in terms of technology? It was. So that was the year when the majority of North Americans owned a smartphone. It's also around the same time that social media use among teens moved from relatively optional to almost mandatory. And probably not a coincidence, that's also around the time that teen depression started to increase, as well as self-harm and anxiety. And we now have data not just from the U.S., but from Canada, from the U.K., and for for loneliness, we have data from around the world showing that teen loneliness started to increase after 2012. Jean Schwange, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. That was author and professor of psychology at San Diego State University, Jean Twangy, author of Generations, The Real Differences Between Gen Z, Millennials, Gen X, Boomers, and Silence, and What They Mean for America's Future. And that brings us to the end of this week's edition of the Zoomer Week in Review. I'm Christine Ross for Libby Zneimer. Thanks for joining me today. Be sure to come back next week to stay up to date with all things Zoomer worldwide. Zoomer Week in Review is produced by Zeev Huddy, Christine Ross, and Paul Thomas. Technical producer, Justin Eacock. Executive producer, Moses Neimer. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.